They've been with Jesus every day for month upon month upon month. They don't recognize Him, and yet the crowds do recognize Him. Perhaps Mark is trying to say something to us about the deceptiveness of the storm. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it, or as many as touched him, were made well. So these final verses of chapter 6 serve as a fitting conclusion to the section that we wrap up here at the end of chapter 6. As we cross over into chapter 7, we'll notice next week that the Gospel of Mark will take a change in tone and it will remain in that same sort of tone from there to the conclusion. In fact, about halfway through chapter 8, it's going to take a dramatic change in tone and we'll notice the shift in the events and what's going on about halfway through chapter 8 as Jesus will tell them for the very first time that he's going to be killed. But until that point, from the beginning of chapter 7, we'll see a change in tone as the Pharisees once again come to confront Jesus. And we'll have this tone of confrontation that begins from chapter 7 and verse 1. Now, the section that begins from verse 1 of chapter 7 is a lengthy section. It goes down to, to verse 23 of chapter 7. And it is a very tedious section, and it's a full section. It's going to take us two to three weeks to work through that section. We won't begin there today, but we'll look at these final verses of chapter 6 that serve for us as, first of all, a nice conclusion for the events that we have been studying up until this point. Just to remind ourselves of what has happened recently, there has been, of course, this feeding that took place over in Bethsaida, Julius, where Jesus goes there for this much-needed day of rest. He has just sent the disciples out for the first time. They come back. Jesus is uh, remarking that they are terribly weak and and, uh, worn out, and they're just in need of rest. They're spiritually weak. They're spiritually tired. They have been exhausted by the sending out. And so Jesus says, come away with me, and we'll go to the other side here, and we'll have a day of rest. And as they go, then the boat is spotted. They're spotted in the boat and the people are running alongside the boat on the shore as the boat remains within sight of the shore there. And they follow Jesus to where they're going. Jesus gets out of the boat and getting out of the boat, there's already a crowd gathering. So he sees them. He has compassion on them because they are like sheep without a shepherd. And he begins meeting their most most poignant need, which is to explain and teach to them the word of God. And doing this all day, the crowd gathers and gathers until it's a crowd of some 5,000 men plus women and children. And then as the day is coming to a conclusion, Jesus puts the question to his disciples, how will we provide for these people here? They're going to need food. The disciples say, well, dismiss them so they can get somewhere and buy some food before the sun goes down and everything's closed. Jesus says, no, why don't you feed them? And so then they go out and they buy the last remaining little bit of food, which is just a little bit of bread and a little bit of fish. They bring it to Jesus. They say, this is all we've got. Even if we had 200 denarii, even if we had a full year's wages, we couldn't even buy enough for everybody to have just one little bite, even if there was that much here to buy. Instead, Jesus takes this from them. He blesses them. 
He has them sit down and then we have that strong, strong shepherd imagery where Jesus is feeding them. They're sitting on their mate, made to sit on the grass. Jesus is providing for them the strong shepherd imagery. But in the course of all that, the crowd, as well as the disciples, begin to get caught up in this euphoria over this man, Jesus, over his personality, over the charisma, over the miracles, over the teaching. And being so caught up in this, they begin to envision Jesus as this political leader who will free them from all their earthly troubles. The disciples get all caught up in this because, of course, if Jesus becomes this political leader, they are his most 12 most trusted accomplices, so to speak. And so they begin seeing these stars in their own eyes and they begin to get caught up in all the excitement of Jesus becoming this political deliverer. Jesus sees all this taking place and he says to them, you need to get in the boat and you need to leave. He dismisses the crowd. He compels the disciples to get into the boat to begin across to the other side to Bethsaida of Galilee. Jesus, meanwhile, goes up on the mountain to pray. He spends the the entire night praying. Meanwhile, the disciples spend the entire night fighting the storm, fighting the waves, rowing against the waves. Jesus waits until the final watch of the night and he comes walking to them on the sea. And we saw in that passage last week, we spent two weeks on that passage because it is such a profound passage. It is such a profound demonstration of Jesus as God. The theophany that we talked about, the Christophany, the showing Jesus as the Christ, showing him as God. Three powerful ways that we saw that. Jesus, of course, walks on the water. That strong Old Testament imagery of God putting water under his feet. Jesus, we're told in the language of the Old Testament, meant to pass them by. Or in other words, Mark is using the language of the Old Testament to hearken our thoughts back to those instances in which God revealed himself to a particular people or a particular person in a particular way. So he meant to pass them by and then getting into the boat as the disciples are fearful. They think he's a goat, ghost, not a goat, but a ghost. As he's getting into the boat, he says, take courage. I am, I am. Yahweh is here. The threefold demonstration that Jesus Christ is the Son of God in the flesh. And then getting into the boat, the storm is immediately calmed. Jesus miraculously brings them to the other side. And that brings us to our passage today. So this passage will conclude sort of these events leading up to this. The miracles that we've talked about, the the beheading of John the Baptist, those stories that go along with that, as well as the calming of the storm on the sea, the feeding, all that will be brought to a close with these concluding words. But also we're going to be prepared, so to speak. Mark is going to prepare us. He is going to prepare our thoughts to enter into chapter 3. And I'll call attention to that as we go through the passage this morning. So Mark is a very disciplined writer. We've seen that from the beginning. Mark is a disciplined writer. And what I mean by disciplined writer is this. I remember, I'll always remember this, I think. This is one of these memories that will stay with me. I remember getting to seminary. And I remember more than one professor saying basically the same thing to me. Of course, to go to seminary, uh, an undergraduate degree was required. So I had an undergraduate degree and it was in the humanities. And so I remember getting my undergraduate degree and writing many, many papers for that degree. So I show up at seminary having that degree thinking that I knew at least how to write an academic paper. But I remember many times my professors telling us, you know, we've learned from experience, from long experience, not to expect any of you to know how to write when you get here because they don't teach you in undergraduate studies anymore how to write. 
that came as a surprise to me, but they just said, you know, we've learned this over and over is that when you come to us, we're just going to have to teach you from square one how to write academically. And so they began to do that process in all my classes. And the thing that was repeated and drilled into me is that disciplined academic writing, disciplined academic writing always starts with the conclusion. You write the conclusion of what you want to say first so that everything that you write after that leads you into that conclusion. You ever written a paper in high school or something like that and you started with the introduction? Anybody ever done that? And you start with the introduction and you sort of have some foggy idea of what you want to say and you introduce what you want to say, but by the time you conclude it, you find out that you're concluding a completely different paper than you started. Anybody ever had that experience? Okay, so the way you alleviate that is you start with your conclusion and then everything you write has to direct the reader into that conclusion. That's how you write in a disciplined way. Mark is a disciplined writer. He introduced the gospel with the conclusion. He told us in the very first sentence what the purpose of the gospel is. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And everything that he has written since then, and everything that he will write after this point is leading the reader in one direction into that direction. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Gospel, of course, good news from the Greek euangelio. The good news that God the Son has come to us in the man, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And everything that Mark has said, every story he's related, every miracle account, the parables that were given, even the conflicts with the Pharisees, the stories of John the baptizer, all of these things are leading the the reader in a very disciplined way toward that conclusion that he started out by telling us, this is what I'm going to prove to you in my gospel. So as he concludes this section with these thoughts here, we're going to see as we work through these how how thoroughly permeated this is with Mark's overall theme, with what he wants to show us, the good news of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who is God the Son come in flesh. So with that in mind, let's just begin from verse 53. When they, speaking of the disciples plus Jesus now, because he's in the boat with them, when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. So we remember that Jesus sent them out and he sent them to go to Bethsaida or specifically Bethsaida of Galilee. But they end up in a place called Gennesaret. Gennesaret is on the northwestern corner of the Sea of Galilee. Beth- Bethsaida of Galilee is a little bit further south, but they've ended up in the northwest corner in this place called Gennesaret. Now, a little bit of background of Gennesaret might be helpful for us. Gennesaret, unlike the other names that we come across in Mark's gospel, such as Bethsaida, Capernaum, Caesarea, these other places, Tiberias, Gennesaret is not a city, but it's a region. It's a region that, uh, as it bordered the Sea of Galilee, was about a three-mile border on the sea, and it went back in a little bit of a uh, uh, rectangular, not rectangular, but a, uh, what's my geometry? A triangular sort of shape to the backside was maybe a mile or so. So if you put all that area together, it was maybe 8, 10, or 12 square miles, something like that. It's, it's hard to say for certain because it wasn't bordered by fences, of course. It's a region. And so this region would have been, say, around 10 square miles. And it was well-known, a well-known region for a few things. First of all, the one thing that we want to make note of is that this was a place of what we would call nominal Jewish influence. 
So this was part of the promised land proper. However, we should be careful when we think about the ancient promised land. We should not think of it as a place of black and white, a place of, of borders and fences and border crossings so that when you left the promised land and entered into the land of the, Galil- uh, uh, the Gentiles, that you crossed through some border cross- crossing and showed your Jewish passport to, to come back in. Instead, the further you got from Jerusalem, the more sparsely populated the areas were in general with Jewish people and the more increasingly populated it became by Gentile peoples in such a way so that as you traveled further north, you became more and more surrounded by both Gentile people and Gentile cultures. So this land is part of what we would call Galilee. So we think of those two regions, Galilee together with Samaria. They they made up what was the older kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, which was the ten tribes that broke off from the two tribes, the tribes of Judah and, of course, the tribe of Levi that remained in the south, the southern kingdom of Judah, which is where Jerusalem is located, But then the northern regions of Samaria and Galilee, as you traveled further and further from Jerusalem, it became more and more Gentile. And so Jesus was from an area known as Nazareth, as we know. This was a little bit closer to Jerusalem than was the area that we're in now. This area would have been a very nominally Jewish sort of area. This would have been an area in which many of the people, maybe as many as half or more of the people, would have been Gentile by their ethnicity and by their religion as well. And so this area is a nominally, nominally Jewish area, but it's also widely known as a very fertile place, a place of beauty, of natural beauty. It was a plain and on this plain, it was, it was green, it was fertile, agriculture was abounding. Compare that to Nazareth. Remember when we talked about Nazareth? Nazareth was barren and craggy and rocky and, and hillside caves, that sort of thing. That's what Nazareth looked like. This would have looked like lush plains with lots of green uh, trees, abundant crops, that sort of thing, a place known for its beauty. But then also it was a place that was densely populated. So being such an area that was so fertile, it makes sense to us that a lot of people lived there. So this was about 10 square miles in which a lot of people lived. It was full of villages, towns, cities, that sort of thing. It was a very populous sort of area. So they land here at this place called Gennesaret, and they moored to the shore. I always like to pause and just take note of whenever I see something in Scripture that just brings out the personality of the writer. We know that the writer of Scripture, of course, the the ultimate the author of Scripture is, is divine. The Holy Spirit wrote the Scriptures, but He used humans to write the Scriptures. And if we look carefully, we can always see little hints of the personality of the human writer coming through. So we're told here that the boat came to the land and moored at the shore. That's a nautical term, a very specific nautical term. That means that the boat was fastened to land either by way of an anchor on the bed of the sea there or by way of a rope tied to a dock, that sort of thing. It's the only time this word shows up in the New Testament. And who would have used this word other than Peter? Peter being the fisherman, being the sailor, it makes perfect sense that he told us that the boat was moored. The other gospel writers, Matthew, they don't say, they just say that it, the, the boat came to land and they got out at Gennesaret. But Peter tells us the boat was moored to the shore. Verse 54, and when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him. Now, what strikes me there 
is that it seems to me that Mark wants to intentionally draw our attention to something. He wants to contrast something for us. You're nodding your head. Because we just finished a story in which the disciples should have recognized Jesus, yet they did not recognize Jesus. And now they come to the shore, they get out of the boat, and everybody recognizes Jesus. The word that Mark uses here means that they discerned something or someone that was right or true or valid and then reacted appropriately. That's what the word means. Discerned someone or something to be right and then reacted to that appropriately. So Mark's going to show us how they discerned rightly who Jesus is and then reacted appropriately to who they recognized. All that comes on the heels of the story in which the disciples should have recognized the great shepherd coming to them on the water, yet they did not recognize him and not recognizing him, they did not react properly to him. So it seems to me that Mark wants to call our attention to that, to the fact that they recognize Jesus, but the disciples just the night before did not recognize Jesus. They recognize Jesus. Many of them probably have never seen Jesus. Maybe they've just been told about him. Maybe people have told him about what he looks like or, or how he travels with these disciples or something of that nature. And yet they recognize him. The disciples who now have spent with Jesus, oh, we don't know. This, this is, this is a guess, but, but we're going to guess about maybe a year to two years. When we start chapter seven, most biblical scholars are going to guess, and that's what it is, a guess, that we're about a year from the cross, which means that the disciples have been with Jesus on a daily basis now for about a year, every day. And so they've been with Jesus every day for month upon month upon month. They don't recognize him, and yet the crowds do recognize him. Perhaps Mark is trying to say something to us about the deceptiveness of the storm about how it is that the disciple who knows Jesus, who follows Jesus, yet in the storm can be led astray to not recognize the one whom they know. Meanwhile, in the calm of the next day, in the safety of the land, in the firma terra under our feet, we can recognize someone whom we barely know. Perhaps Mark is trying to call our attention to the disciple there to say, beware of the storm that you remember who you belong to, that you remember how to recognize the one to whom you belong.